Hi folks and thanks for listening to this Tortoise Shack podcast. A little bit of housekeeping before we kick off, you know what I'm going to say. We need you to click the link that says patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack. Throw us the price of a fancy cup of coffee and maybe a scone once a month and help us keep this show on the road. And you get piles and piles of extras, including our exclusive interview with the Minister for Housing, Dara O'Brien, which is out there right now. It's one of 1,300 podcasts, all available plea-free in one consolidated podcast feed. You never miss an episode, whether it be Echo, Reboot, Glow West, and our regular Sunday shows. There's no long-term contract, so maybe just try it for a month, see what you think, and if you don't like it, cancel it. Rory always says it's more than a podcast, it's activism. Think of this as the easiest bit of activism you can do on a monthly basis. That couple of quid that you you give us helps us have those conversations and keep this space open for topics and subjects that deserve that bit more time that you can get on a podcast without rushing to news, traffic and travel. So one more time, click the link, patreon.com forward slash tortoise Thanks for listening. Thanks for the support. Enjoy the podcast. <laughs> Welcome to Reboot Republic, the podcast that goes behind the headlines and looks at the big issues in this republic of inequality. We are the podcast of solutions and the podcast of hope, and I'm your host, Rory Hearn, and delighted to be joined back on the podcast by one of our listeners' favourite guests uh, and longtime contributor, Dr. Tricia Kielty, from uh, Head of um, Social Justice with St. Vincent de Paul. Tricia, it's great to have you back on Reboot. Thanks, Rory. Great to be here. So, Tricia, we've it's been a while since we've talked, and the last time we were talking was at the height, well, at some level, what is called the height of the cost of living crisis, and of course, the cost of living crisis is still going on uh, very severely. Um, and maybe you could just set out in terms of where are we at that, because I, the narrative um, at one level uh, in the public debate and in terms of politics is that at the cost of living crisis has abated. What's what's the experience within St. Vincent de Paul and your own analysis on that? Yeah, I suppose from our perspective, since we last spoke, which I think was just after um, the budget of for 2023 in autumn last year, we would have had an incredibly um, busy few months uh, in terms of our local volunteers working to support households across the country um, who are struggling with systemic issues related to poverty, but also with the cost of living crisis piled on top of that. So wintertime, um, so many households were getting in touch who couldn't afford to keep the heating on, couldn't afford um, food, very basic needs. Uh, if you looked at our calls over 2022, they were up um, in the region of 20% compared to the previous year. And that's continued. So for the first quarter of this year, again, another 19% increase in the requests for help to our local offices. Um, and I suppose most worryingly, we saw a 50% increase in calls for help with energy um, in the first three months of the year. Uh, and I suppose that's that's not surprising, just given the price increases that people have experienced. And Obviously, like the electricity credit and the extra social welfare payments did give people some relief, but the reality is the price increases have been so extreme um, that they haven't really addressed the problem fully. And now in the last couple of months, we're, we're meeting people who have huge um, arrears on their gas bills um, in the region of €800,000. So for people on low and fixed incomes, um, there's absolutely no capacity to repay that. Uh, what we saw during during um, the winter months 
was uh, people on prepay meters uh, really struggling to keep uh, the heat on. They uh, were telling us that they had to put at least €100 Euro in the meter every week just to keep the heating on. Um, that is a huge amount of money if your income is from social welfare or if you're in low paid work. There's absolutely no way that you can pay that. So the reality was people were going without heat for two or three days of the week. Um, people in poorly insulated homes, whether that's private rented accommodation um, or local authority housing, and not having um, adequate heat had a huge impact on people's physical health you know, more respiratory problems if there's mould and damp in the household. And then also just the the stress and strain of that. There's a huge amount of anxiety out there. People don't know what's going to happen next. And then I suppose up, ne- up to now, then we saw the lifting of the disconnection moratorium at the end of March. And that was also the same day that the eviction ban was lifted. So there's huge issues and worry out there. And it's, it hasn't gone away. And in fact, it's probably intensified. Yeah, that it's actually intensified um, is is quite something. And you're saying a fifty percent increase in, you know, calls to you to St. Vincent de Paul for support with, um, you know, gas in particular, and you know the level of arrears, and we're, we're hearing that, and, and the level of anxiety, as you say, that people must be experiencing. Just on you're saying that lifting of the moratorium, um on disconnections at the same time as the lifting of the eviction ban. Have you seen much impact of the lifting of the eviction ban in terms of people coming to you? So what we've seen really, obviously, we have had people come to us who have a notice of termination, but the majority of people that are, are coming to us would be people who have a notice of termination for reason, reasons of rent arrears. And I suppose that didn't stop during the moratorium because um, uh eviction was still allowed to be issued for reasons of rent arrears because that's not considering a no-fault eviction. But in our in our view, that's where the cost of living crisis and the housing crisis intersect. It's if people are in HAP tenancies, they may have a, a big top-up they have to pay to the landlord because the limits aren't high enough. Um, people are struggling in other areas of the family budget. They may have a big bill. They may have maybe thought they could put off paying the rent for a week and then that all builds up. We've lots of households who have been issued a notice of termination and they may just have arrears of 200 euro or, you know, up to 900 euro. And I, it just, there's very little help in, in that situation for people because, um, you know, obviously they can come to us, they can speak to Threshold and we can, we can do everything we can to keep people in their homes. But it just doesn't make sense to us that there isn't government support for rent arrears for people on low and fixed incomes who, through no fault of their own, don't have the capacity to to pay these arrears back, um, because the cost of putting a family into emergency accommodation is is multiples of that. So, you know, I think there has been um, some acknowledgement of that. The new measures that were announced with the lifting of the eviction ban. One was that the the local authorities will continue to pay the landlord the rent if the tenant falls into arrears on the differential rent. So that gives people a little more breathing space. But I suppose it's just symptomatic of a wider problem in terms of reliance on HAP to meet social housing needs. It doesn't give people the security that they need and, and the broader issue around the need for to increase um, access to social and affordable housing as well. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. I hadn't heard that, that local authorities were now continuing to pay landlords 
where someone went into arrears uh, on their differential rent. Is that across the board, every local authority? Have they been issued guidance on that? I'm not sure where it's at. I think it's pretty much the policy is just starting to be implemented. So we're, we're waiting to see how it will work in practice. Um, and it would be across local authorities. Um, all those would offer that as a, as a, a support mechanism. So because if you fall into arrears, if you're in local authority housing, social housing, you're you're given a chance to work out a payment. Yeah. So we'd hope that this would be the same model now that would be applied to have. Yeah. Because that's often cited by landlords um as a reason for their being reluctant to take on HAP tenants, but also um I- issuing evictions and saying that they have this huge accumulation of arrears because when the tenant uh, isn't doesn't pay to the local authority that then the HAP payment is stopped to the landlord. So is it policy now that the, is it national policy that actually the state, the local authorities will continue to pay? Yeah, I think that's our understanding. Again, I'm not sure how far along it is in the process, but that was one of the announcements with the um, lifting of the eviction ban. So yeah, it's it's a positive, positive move, but I suppose it's only really going to touch the edges on this wider problem yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah. No, it is, it, is, it is a significant change if it's put in place properly, but it doesn't address the wider issue then is in terms of rent arrears. And if you're on HAP, as you say, there's a whole issue of top-ups um, that uh, aren't covered and wouldn't, that you have to pay additional to the money you're paying to the council. And this is where the gap, as you said, the gap between HAP, um, the HAP limits and the actual rents, the rents that landlords are looking for. Um, and as you say, people are falling into arrears. And I do have people coming to me as well. And it is one of the issues that I'm seeing, this issue of rent arrears. And when I was doing my research for the last um, journal article I wrote, and, and it had been pointed out by colleagues that have been linking in with around the uh, Europe, that in countries like Belgium, they have specific rent arrear funds, rent arrears funds and mechanisms whereby they will support tenants who are in rent arrears. Um, and it's not a reason as well for eviction. And if there is an issue of rent arrears, there's a whole mechanisms they have, they have funds there in place um, to keep people in their home provided by the state. So it seems like an obvious thing that we should be doing here. Yeah, absolutely. And that's something that ourselves and, and Threshold have recommended in um, a number of pre-budget submissions going going back a few years. So because there's, there's very little um, support there, you know, obviously... One logical place that that could be provided is through the community welfare service as part of the Department of Social Protection. But obviously, if there was support there through Department of Housing and, and local authorities, if there was funding available at that point, then you could have a more comprehensive um, homeless prevention service at a, at a local level as well. And what was the response you've got from that? Have you got any feedback to that proposal for a rent arrears fund? I think there's always the and for, for anything around like debt relief and the same goes for utility arrears. There's always this pushback around moral hazard that you know if you um, let people default and support them, then in that way that you know that has unintended consequences. Um, really, I I just don't think that's unintended that's consequences. It's like people will stop paying their rent. Keep, yeah, yeah. It might actually keep people in their home. Well, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So, like, obviously, that doesn't doesn't stack up. Um, yeah. But you know, I suppose we, we it hasn't hasn't been given um, 
enough attention. And I suppose again, this is something that I think ourselves and thresholds will be will be focusing on. Um, because it, again, as I said there, this is where the housing crisis and um and cost of living crisis are really starting to to bite. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. I think that there is a real need to focus on that um that issue of the rent arrears fund, um and particularly as homeless prevention, but as you say, as the cost of living um, and housing intersect. And I really think that um, in the run-up to the budget, I would have thought would be an opportunity to put this back central as a proposal. Again, obviously, you've been putting it in, as you said, yourselves and Threshold as a budget proposal um, in the coming, in the previous years. But again, this year would be an obvious time to uh, try and push it again. Yeah, and I suppose there was a model put in place during COVID for people who had fallen behind maybe on their rent due to loss of income and things like that and extra supports through the RTB. So there is um, a mechanism there that could be looked at in relation to this. And I suppose that's something that, again, we will be highlighting. And what was that? What was done through the RTB? So there was extra extra protections there for people who'd fallen into rent oh, years yes. and were yeah. on a pandemic unemployment payment. They yeah. could engage at Mahal's. But there was funding support. No, there was no funding support. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. 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 It was just protection from eviction. They were included yeah. in the lists of of those protected who were covered under the moratorium. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah, that issue of of moral hazard is just like it's just illogical because, as you mentioned earlier, in terms of from a cost benefit point of view, you know the costs, the social costs of the trauma and anxiety and how they impact on on ill health and um of the of the people affected. But then you have the cost of you know emergency accommodation. And then providing social housing down the line, whereas if you keep people in their home, in their rental home, it saves those actual costs. So the moral hazard argument really doesn't stack up, does it? But yet it's there. It's it's a deep, it's deeply entrenched in the Irish state, isn't it? It's still this idea that, you know, you have to deserve the charity that you get rather than, you know, a social policy that is really views people as rights holders rather than people as trying to scam them. Exactly, yeah. And, you know, the state has to guarantee people's, you know, right to, to adequate standard of living, you know, under international um, human rights protections and things like that. So really, you know, it is, it's not just the, the cost to putting someone in emergency accommodation, it's the long term costs of inflicting the trauma of homelessness on yeah. children and families um, in terms of mental health, physical health loss of opportunity, all those things, even short-term stays in emergency accommodation can have long-term impacts. So it really is looking at the evidence, you know, in terms of the reality of people's experience at the moment and using that to inform policy and having a state that is um, proactive and not reactive to issues um, and trying to deal with the symptoms instead having a more preventative approach is, is really important. Yeah, and just on that, the Obviously, the, the big thing that has been discussed at the moment um, before we're going to come on and talk about recent poverty figures around those uh, under in, within the international protection system um, and child poverty, the issue of the fund, this what we're going to do with our um, potentially up to 65 billion in surpluses in the coming years. Uh, and the government appears to be um, moving towards developing this uh, essentially, my understanding is it's, it's effectively a pension reserve fund part two, um, and the previous pension they're they're talking about it and using a language around it that it's like a wealth fund, like Norway and that, but it's not, as my understanding that it's 
it is this the pension reserve fund that we had before um and that was used to bail out the banks and that um essentially it, it does invest but it doesn't invest in a targeted way it offer it's invest the money essentially in the markets and that's where the billions are put um and you know we do have an element of the we have the Irish Infrastructure Investment Fund, which has a certain amount in it, but that has been operating on what is called a commercial basis and has been investing with investor funds and all sorts of projects and not um it it has invested in some affordable housing, but I would have thought that a much more productive way would be to put the money into you know long term sustainable um interventions in developing our you know public infrastructure around like for example major retrofitting publicly funded a public construction company building public and affordable housing um and you know th- things like expanding things like childcare universal childcare facilities services all that social infrastructure that we need um what's your own view on it yeah ours would be the same that's the most obvious way to use this um extra web- revenue to invest in long term permanent infrastructure that supports um, the well-being of society. So, you know, obviously social and affordable housing. You mentioned there the retrofit of, of uh, social homes, the the level and scale that's needed in relation to that. It, we're not just meeting that in, in terms of targets. We need to dramatically increase the um, retrofit programme, um, not only for energy poverty reasons, but also for sustainability reasons as well. Um, the other big area then is transport. That is a huge bearing on people's um, ability to to access services, um, access employment, uh, particularly for households in rural areas. Um, we've seen over the last uh, couple of months in particular, those households really struggle um, because you need a car um, to get around and the cost of petrol and everything that, that goes along with it causes huge difficulties for households where people have to choose which trips to take um, growing social isolation. So having a proper rural public transport system um, is really important. And then also, as you mentioned there, childcare, like the facilities are there, publicly provided childcare um, that supports the the well-being of children um, across the state as well. So it is those permanent measures that kind of improve our social infrastructure um, and meet the needs of all society, but those also have um, a much more positive impact on people who are living below the poverty line if we have a strong social infrastructure and universal basic services as well. And do you think there's a case as well for putting into immediate uh, support measures around the cost of living like the Rent Arrears Fund and those issues that you've raised? Yeah, I suppose our our key focus would be also committing to like a a social welfare system that's adequate and uh, a minimum wage that's adequate as well Um, and I think we need to shift the thinking from these one-off measures or these short interventions as well to think about the system as a whole and how it's supporting people to meet their minimum essentials living needs and living with dignity um, and I think in the longer, medium to longer term, we need to look at benchmarking it to the cost of a minimum essential standard of living um, our social welfare system and also providing support to people in, in the immediate, whether that's rent arrears or utility arrears and things like that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and in terms of this, I don't know, have you looked at the government's proposal around exactly what they're 
talking about doing in terms of this fund and the discussion and do you see kind of the possibility for influencing how that might be developed and in in making it in in more what we're proposing here and suggesting here yeah i suppose that the you know the focus for us is is obviously budgetary um the budget cycle um and i suppose that the longer term infrastructural kind of development and policy change um requires you know much longer term thinking so we hope that it's not just a short term kind of use of funds we are thinking more in the long term looking at how um certain investments will lead to, you know, improvements in well-being, improvements in social infrastructure, you know, engaging with government and, and departments in regard to that as well is really important. And is there, in terms of that budget cycle, what's, is there, there's a, a dialogue that comes up is happening shortly, is that right, where government departments and the NGOs like yourselves and business meet together, is that happening this year? Yeah, so the National Economic Dialogue um takes place every year and um, it's a one day event where all stakeholders get around the table with the with hosted by the minister for finance to lay out the priorities for for the next budget um i suppose it, it it's it's it should be i think it should be more than one day um but yeah it's a it's a, an opportunity to kind of set out the priorities and hear the priorities of the business sector and and the environmental pillar as well um in terms of where there kind of is alignment and um you know, cross cross common asks, and I suppose every year what comes out very strongly is the need to invest in services and infrastructure as well ac- across the the different um, sectors as well. Um, and I suppose it is, it's just always so difficult with the one one budget cycle, one year to do any of that more longer term thinking. So there is definitely merit in having multi annual budget kind of projects and things like that so there can be a bit of forward planning and thinking um into into the future yeah yeah and of course the question is how much you know different sectors are actually listened to and how much they influence um and you know the whole issue of how how are these issues brought forward and i think the need for that public advocacy and public public campaigning alongside you know sitting down with them that you know, often these these forums can be just tokenistic and, and a way in, in almost of kind of keeping the NGO sector inside and giving them the illusion that they've been listened to. Um, do, you, do you think there's an issue with that as well? And there's that need for that public advocacy as well on these things and public campaigning? Yeah, absolutely. You know, our role is is not just to, to you know, influence Policymakers is also to influence public opinion, you know, shining a light on what the reality is for people, what the evidence is, where the um, resources should be allocated and why that's a benefit to not just people in poverty, but people across society as well. So there's a there's a broader kind of national conversation that needs to be had and then getting, you know, support for our solutions and recommendations as well is, is crucial. Yeah, yeah. And listen, Trisha, one of the areas you want to talk about was child poverty Um and the specific uh, the the work done by the Children's Rights Alliance around hiding the are hide, highlighting not hiding highlighting to the opposite of hiding uh, the children in, in the international protection system, um, and broadly you know it's an area that we've spoken about before and you've highlighted in terms of that um, issue of child poverty and we've seen that the the CSO figures showed um, in February that there was more than eighty nine thousand children living in consistent poverty, which was up 40% um, in a year. And we've seen that 
it's a very significant rise in the number of children um, experiencing poverty and deprivation um, up from 202,000 in 2021 to 236,000 in 2022. Um, is that rise in child poverty largely obviously linked with the rise in poverty around cost of living um, and the, the housing issue? Yeah, I suppose um, obviously the, the, the last two years we've seen a, a dramatic increase in, in the poverty figures and particularly the deprivation figures. So that's the proportion of the population going without essentials like adequate heat, adequate nutrition, um, access to, to social engagement and things like that. Um, and I think the big, the biggest driver has been on the energy energy front. So the proportion of people who could not afford to adequately heat their home in 2022 doubled from the rate in 2021. So almost 400,000 people um, and a, a many of them are households with children. For lone parents, the rate increased from 7% to 21%. So no. lone parents have been disproportionately impacted like they are in all kind of social and economic crises. Um, by this cost of living crisis. And we also have to remember that COVID also had a huge impact on children and families. Um, and that sometimes isn't measured in the silk data, but things like um, during school closures, the, the learning loss that was experienced, particularly by disadvantaged children who couldn't access um, online learning, um, loss of social engagement, the mental health impacts of that. So it has been a very, very difficult few years for children and particularly for children um, living in poverty and our concern now is that um, unless the next budget is very much child focused that trajectory will continue. Now it's really significant that the Taoiseach has committed to establishing this child poverty unit that's something that we across the sector have advocated for so yeah. that's a real opportunity to coordinate action across government departments because a lot of the time the budget is very siloed um, Department of Social Protection will do X, but it could mean an unintended consequence to your differential rent could go up or the childcare subsidy hasn't increased and you're losing access to that. So it's about that joined up approach to looking at the needs of children in poverty and making a real difference. Um, and that's something that ourselves and, and organisations like the Children's Rights Alliance will be campaigning for in the run up to this budget. Yeah, it, it is significant that, you know, they have set up this unit now within, as you say, the Department of Taoiseach. And, and I think it's in, in including the prevention of family homelessness as well. Um, and I, I think it's really important that that uh, unit looks at the structural reasons, as you've set out, you know, for the for poverty um, and the inequalities that are driving it and actually isn't just another kind of, you know, <laughs> center that is about taking you know some way some way kind of the the pressure off and saying oh look we have a center now so we're dealing with this and actually going okay looking at the 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 significant transformations that are needed to address child poverty um and one area specifically then um which was highlighted this week was the poverty levels um in and the failure of the income support in the for children in direct provision um, and the Children's Rights Alliance have described the financial support for children in direct provision as falling shamefully support of the bare minimum. Um, could you outline just what are those uh, supports and how they're falling short? Yeah, so 
this um, piece of work that was kind of, is led by the Children's Rights Alliance is based on research from the Vincentian MESL Research Centre. So this um, centre looks at what is the cost of a minimum standard of living? What do people need in Ireland to live a dignified life? So they apply that to about 90% of households across Ireland. Um, and they took on this project to look at the adequacy of payments to children or families in direct provision. So they looked at um, what are what is provided in the centres. So it does account for the fact that you will receive food in a direct provision centre. You'll have a medical card um, and you'll have some personal items covered um, and you may have some access to transport. And that's the best case scenario because we know the standards that are provided in direct provision centres across the country vary significantly in terms of quality of food and access yeah. to supports in service as well. So I suppose this is to say, even in the best case scenario, a one parent family with two children, the income supports that they receive, which is um, a daily allowance for children of um, just over 29 euro and a daily allowance for parents of just over uh, 38 euro per week. That is 50% of what they actually need to live um, with dignity to meet their basic essential needs. So it's totally inadequate. Um, So we need and it has been committed to by government to extend a child benefit style payment to children in direct provision. Now that wouldn't address that gap fully, but it would go a long way. So we also need to increase the daily rate. But we also like it's a part of a bigger program in terms of the white paper on ending direct provision. Um, there is commitments there that people would not stay any longer in um, direct provision centres for more than three months, they would be moved out into the community and could access social welfare. Now, obviously, given uh, the war in Ukraine and the um, housing crisis, uh, the, the that kind of um, piece of work is, has been pushed back, but it's still so important because um, the situation of children growing up in direct provision and parents and and, and adults as well for long periods of time is is just unacceptable. Um, SVP would support families um, and people living in direct provision across the country. Um, and the level of isolation and disconnection uh, for people who have fled uh, with their countries due to war or have experienced trauma um, is, is huge. And even small things like can make a massive difference. So a lot of the time, you know, you don't get support for kind of to pay for like basic things like being able to join the GA club. Now SVP yeah. may help families with that. And that can not only is that the child getting to do activities, meet other children, but it also brings the parents out of the centre. They can meet other parents so they can start to integrate into the community. Because when we think about poverty, we're often only talking about the basics sometimes. But there's a huge piece around social inclusion. Being able to go and meet people um and not being able to do that um, because poverty is lonely and if you don't have enough income um, to do small things like getting a cup of coffee, uh, joining a sports club, all those things um, are so important and we kind of need to broaden our understanding of, of poverty as well and how it impacts people in different ways. But uh, for the integration point piece, you know, um, having that social inclusion support is is critical. I think that's a really important point. Um and it's relevant, particularly in Ireland, because our cost of living is 40% higher 
than anywhere else in the EU. And therefore, the fact that it's so high to do anything, the cost is so high to do anything. You say even to go for somewhere for a cup of coffee, you know, to go into a, um, you know, a bouncy play center, to go, you know, to bring, to go to a swimming pool, to do anything, um, to get people out, you know, it, it, it really is, um, the, and the cost, as you say, of GA, of doing sports, of soccer, it all costs money. And I know, you know, there are a lot of clubs that do work on, on support, um, and integrating and they're aware but it's difficult as well for families to have to be constantly asking oh you know can I I can't cover the cost of this and um, you know it is hugely expensive if you want children to be involved in things um, and again that's an issue of you know of how we organise our society and, and that we make it so expensive to do things like basic things like being in a sport or being in a club or um, and that it's you're right to say, you know, poverty is hugely isolating. And of course, that's hugely damaging as well in terms of mental health um, and general ill health. And we need to expand our understanding of poverty um, around that and particularly for those um, in direct provision. And it is deeply traumatic as well. And it's similar in homelessness and emergency accommodation. And no one should be in these situations for, you know, longer than three months. Really, it should be only a matter of days or weeks. Um, any length of time after that is is damaging. Um, so listen, Tricia, thank you so much for coming on again. And it's um, it's uh, it's difficult, difficult stuff, and it's it's hard to keep it keep it going. But yeah, we we we'll still we we'll still stay hopeful anyway. When you know, it's, we have to. Yeah, absolutely, and the the level of need that's there requires it. And you know requires the work and and if people do want to get involved in supporting Saint Vincent de Paul, um, you do have tens of thousands of volunteers around the country. People can get involved. Yeah, actually, we really would um appreciate you know support in terms of volunteering. If you want to spend, you know, two or three hours a week helping people in your community, you can look at our website, svp.ie, and you can see kind of volunteering opportunities. You know, we always need new people um, to help just given the, the requests that are coming in, but also there's loads of different roles that you can take part in and the strength of SVP is based on our, our volunteer membership as well. Yeah, and we um, have had students in my course in Minute who have been volunteering with St. Vincent de Paul and you know, as you would say, and, and anyone who's involved with volunteering, it's hugely, um, it's incredible in terms of the, the feedback and the sense of, you know, contributing. And it again, shows as human beings, we want to be part of a society and, you know, we want to help others. And, um, you know, that's a key part of it. And I think that it's, it's really essential and it builds communities. And so I absolutely would encourage anyone who's able to, to help out so they can contact, just go through the website yeah, exactly. And um yeah, you can you can kind of talk to our volunteer team and see what what options are available and you know, dependent on your availability and things like that. But yeah. Great. Well listen, uh good luck. Are you going to the National Economic Dialogue yourself? Yeah, it will be. Very good. Well listen, we look forward to we'll get feedback from how it went. Okay, great. <laughs> Thanks, Trisha. Thanks so much for coming on Thank today. You. And Trish Kilty there um, from St. Vincent de Paul, as I said, if you're interested in volunteering, go over to the website, uh, St. Vincent de Paul. And also, listeners, really appreciate if you can share these around. Uh, thank you always for the feedback and support. And if you can, become a patron. Go over to 
patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack and help us out independent media and yeah listen we'll talk to you all very soon 